Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Pancho Villa and the Mexican Revolution. Let's continue with our story about Pancho Villa. Predictably, military matters dictated that Villa's official tenure as governor would be short-lived. He officially resigned on January 7, 1914, intent on pursuing the remnants of the Huerta military opposition at Oinaga. A previous military effort was stalled, and Villa figured his presence was enough to achieve success. He was correct. Within hours of his arrival, a night attack was ordered, the city stormed, and the Huertistas panicked and fled, not wanting to be captured. Many literally swam across the Rio Grande to safety, but also internment in the United States. Luis Terrazas, his entire family, and Pascual Orozco were among the fugitives. It was during this battle that a film crew attempted to acquire footage of the battle itself. When this proved unusable, Villa then improvised some dashes on horseback through the streets of the town, also unusable. Eventually, the film was turned into a drama with an actor substituted for the famous revolutionary. Eventually released in May, the life of General Villa helped to bring additional public awareness and fame to the already growing legend of Pancho Villa. In March of 1914, Villa met face-to-face -face with Carranza, the accepted political leader of the revolution, and an individual, at least on paper, that Villa deferred to. Carranza considered Villa a loose cannon. Villa disliked politicians of any stripe, and Carranza was no exception. A major topic of discussion was an incident known as the Benton Affair, in which a British subject and Mexican landowner, William Benton, personally confronted Villa after his land was confiscated. Benton was detained after allegedly personally threatening Villa. Taken to the outskirts of Ciudad Juarez by Rodolfo Fierro, a Villa general and brutal enforcer, the Englishman was beaten to death with a shovel and hastily buried. Both the British and French diplomatic corps were outraged, but Villa was unapologetic. For the moment, Carranza chose to ignore this savage behavior, but it increased the growing tension between the two principles. The discussion did produce one positive outcome. Villa formally requested that Felipe Angeles be permitted to officially join Villa's military staff. Angeles was a traditional army officer with an expertise in artillery. He served during the Diaz government, but was in France when the revolution broke out. Ultimately, he decided that the populist concepts of the revolution were more to his liking and felt Villa best embodied these ideals. 
He already involved himself with Villa at Hoidnaga, and Villa wanted his service during his planned attempt to recapture Torreon, the most important city that had been retaken by the Huerta government. Carranza agreed. Villa's army offensive was now way beyond haphazard hit-and-run cavalry attacks. In this case, he proceeded south by train, Angeles having carefully organized the 18,000-man army into military units. Cavalry horses rode inside of the trains, their riders on top of the rail cars. Part of this train convoy was even devoted to a hospital. Seventy miles north of their objective, the army and all of its components were offloaded. They slowly proceeded along the railroad track, their trains now serving to resupply the effort. Twenty-seven miles north of Torreon, Villa encountered the first outposts of the Huertistas, easily overrunning it and several other small settlements before, on March 22nd, the army arrived at Gomez Palacio, a city four miles to the west of Torreon. It took five days of difficult combat to expel the defenders, who eventually completely retreated. Through the British consulate, Villa sent an offer of an armistice, but it was refused, and a savage street fight ensued for five more days. Under cover of a heavy artillery barrage, the federal commander Velasco fled east to Saltillo by train, abandoning the city and its significant munitions, provisions, and railroad equipment to the División del Norte. This was not a guerrilla attack, but a successful, well-planned military expedition, aided by Angeles' organization and artillery expertise, which burnished Villa and his army's reputation as a formidable military force. When Villa got word that Velasco was reinforced east of Torreón by another detachment of 5,000 troops from Mexico City, he resolved to head east to engage and hopefully destroy this entity once and for all. Once again, his battle train rolled east, once again with the artillery support and battle plan organized by Angelis, he forced his federal opponents to retreat and then flee in disarray. Villa entered the city of Saltillo on May 21, 1914. Perhaps worried about how successful Pancho Villa was becoming, in early June, Venustiano Carranza ordered him by telegraph to divide his army and send one of his staff, General Jose Robles, with 5,000 members of Villa's army to reinforce another rebel offensive which had stalled in the state of Zacatecas. On the pretext that Robles was too ill to undertake such a maneuver, Villa refused and refused again when Carranza ordered him to appoint any other member of his staff to lead the relief column. This telegraphic exchange precipitated Villa's resignation, as well as the resignation of 11 of his senior leadership, action that effectively severed Villa's allegiance to Carranza and made the División del Norte an autonomous fighting force. When notified of Villa's insubordination, Carranza's other commanders in the field reaffirmed their support for the politician. Villa remained defiant. He began moving his army south in the direction of Zacatecas, a city fortified with 12,000 federal soldiers and the gateway to Mexico's interior and the capital. Again, all of the Huerta's faction's defensive preparation and manpower was worthless when the mostly conscripted rank-and-file soldiers quickly fled or deserted before they were killed. Many were captured and only those who were not officers were summarily executed.
Besides the commanding generals, only a few hundred stragglers managed to escape with their lives. The Battle of Zacatecas was the final straw in a string of military disasters suffered by the Huerta regime. The complete collapse of the Federal Army, the only entity which maintained Victoriano Huerta's tentative grip on power, signified the end of his rule. He resigned on July 15, 1914, made his way to Jamaica and temporary refuge in Europe. Although at the height of his military effectiveness and power, Pancho Villa was now confronted with fundamental logistical issues. Although the path to the capital was wide open, Carranza ordered the cutoff of any resupply, especially of coal, which limited the rebel general's railway mobility. Foreign hostility caught up to Villa personally when the Wilson administration tailored an arms embargo designed specifically for the Villistas. Any attempt to patch up an agreement between Carranza and Villa failed, and it became clear that Pancho would never make it to Mexico City before another general loyal to Carranza, Alvaro Obregón. Obregón, approaching initially from the western state of Jalisco, marched unopposed into Mexico City on August 18, 1914. Carranza joined him two days later. Villa had no choice but to retreat northward back to the state of Chihuahua to regroup, resupply, and recruit more soldiers. Although Obregón was formally still loyal to Carranza, he understood both the military power and volatile nature of Pancho Villa and was eager to maintain a coalition that included all three men. To that end, he agreed to travel to Chihuahua City to meet personally with Villa to hammer out a deal. Because Obregón shared many of Villa's populist ideals, the agreement they struck contained many demands involving legal, social, and political reform. Most importantly, the written document presented to Carranza insisted that he declare himself the interim president, a designation that precluded him from running formally for president in any future election. Under the current extra-legal government, Carranza was officially a dictator with no official status and in the eyes of Villa, and even partially of Obregón, no different than Diaz or Huerta. Upon returning to Mexico City, Obregón and Villa's written demands were summarily rejected by Carranza, who with his own significant and loyal standing army certainly could prevent the document's implementation. Twice more, Obregón would make the trek to Chihuahua to try and reconcile the two men, finally giving up when Villa began to threaten him personally. Carranza's only palpable negotiation involved tearing up the railroad line north of Zacatecas. Upon hearing of this development, Villa formally withdrew any military or political support for Venustiano Carranza. Without any consensus among the various military leaders currently impacting the revolution, Carranza understood that his grip on power would be temporary. He attempted to bring all of the various entities together at what was proclaimed as the Great Convention of the Military Chiefs and State Governors. Unfortunately for Carranza, the military leaders excluded any civilian entities, which allowed the participation of Emiliano Zapata and the rejection of Carranza. This body, dominated by Obregón and Villa, appointed a general, Eulalio Gutierrez, as an interim president. Carranza soon realized that not only his political power was in jeopardy, but also his physical well-being. He and his most loyal supporters relocated to the coastal town of Veracruz. 
coincidentally under the military occupation of the U.S. government after a violent March incident involving the U.S. Navy. Pancho Villa chose this window of opportunity to march his army within a few miles of Mexico City, pausing only to meet personally with Zapata. On December 4, 1914, at Xochimilco, one of the most remarkable meetings in Mexican history occurred when the two men met and came to an agreement as to carving up territory and future military strategy. Two days later, both men's armies entered the capital, via providing Zapata's forces with weapons and artillery. Obregón had already declared his opposition to Villa, and after assassinating some of his longtime political enemies, Pancho decided to leave attacking Veracruz to Zapata and headed north to consolidate his power in the region. Unfortunately, Zapata's troops, mostly agrarian peasants from southern Mexico, were not interested in a lengthy offensive involving the east coast of the country. While Carranza collected millions in port revenue, Obregón organized an army of opposition. In addition, the appointed interim president Gutierrez began intriguing with Carranza, and when the subterfuge was exposed, he fled the capital, taking 13 million pesos with him. At a hastily convened conference, the Villistas and Zapatistas then appointed another individual, Roque González Garza, as a third provisional president. Typical of the politics of the time period, Mexico now officially had three provisional presidents, Carranza, Gutierrez, and Garza. Because Carranza had support throughout the country, Villa was forced to defend territory that he previously controlled. Both Villa and Zapata abandoned Mexico City, which was then immediately occupied by Obregón. The Carrancistas took everything of value and added more recruits from the poorest sectors of the city. The only alternative within the looted capital was starvation. Villa focused on a long-term offensive with an objective of pushing all the way to, to the Gulf of Mexico, but he was distracted when Obregón began marching north from Mexico City, hoping to lure Villa into a pitched battle. The Carrancista general halted at the town of Celaya, about 160 miles from Mexico City, and began constructing fortifications. He prepared for a battle that both he and Villa wanted, each commander confident of the outcome. Obregón had an entire month to organize his forces while Villa marched in his direction. On April 6th, Villa's army reached the battlefield and began frontal assaults against entrenched artillery and machine guns. Unlike the unenthusiastic federal troops that repeatedly fled at the first sight of Villa's vaunted cavalry, Obregón's troops were a determined group led by an intelligent and experienced military strategist. This contingent successfully repulsed every Villa assault, the battle a stalemate that only guaranteed that both sides would resupply and fight again. The impetuous Pancho Villa learned nothing from the first encounter. He continually figured that he was just one cavalry charge away from scattering Obregón's defensive lines and winning the day. It never happened. For two days, these costly attacks continued with thousands of casualties suffered by the Villistas. Finally, Obregón ordered a counterattack that forced Villa to order a full-scale retreat. The Battle of Celaya, a devastating defeat. 6,000 of his men were killed, 5,000 wounded, and 6,000 captured. Obregón's losses were in the hundreds, 10% of what Villa absorbed. But the fighting continued as Obregón pressed northward to continue to chase Villa's demoralized army. 
For 40 days from late April 1915 to early June, combat between the two entities continued. After receiving reinforcements, Villa decided to counterattack at Leon, initially achieving success on June 3rd after an artillery attack blew off the arm of General Obregón. But the wound was not fatal. Once again, the repeated cavalry charges against the entrenched Carancistas resulted in nothing but more death and defeat, a counterattack driving Villa out of León. A final pitched battle at Aguas Cayente, eight miles north of León, was another disaster for Villa, effectively destroying the División del Norte and scattering the rest of Villa's men northward towards Chihuahua. For Pancho Villa, the glorious days of marching at the head of a massive army were over. He now was faced with merely struggling to survive and to avoid capture. In early September, Villa lost two crucial members of his general staff. Tomas Urbina, a general who served with Villa from his earliest days, was suspected of receiving clandestine payments after surrendering territory to the Carancistas. Villa had him executed by Rodolfo Fierro. Less malignant, but still disheartening, was the flight of Felipe Angeles, who decided to escape to Texas after realistically appraising Villa's military viability. In his desperation to acquire money, more weapons, and ammunition, the rebel leader began indiscriminately expropriating property from any landowner or business, regardless of nationality. This, plus the success of Carancista generals and Carranza's newly stated policy, to respect American property, tilted the Wilson administration against what they perceived to be an unstable via. Weapon sales to Viista agents in the U.S. were again halted, and the Wilson administration even permitted Carranza forces to use American railroads to reinforce their garrison at Agua Prieta in the state of Sonora, a border town that Villa was intent on capturing to restore his control of northern Mexico. On October 30th, Villa arrived in the vicinity of Agua Prieta with a force numbering about 15,000 men, accumulated as he marched northward. Although disheartened to learn of official U.S. support for Carranza, Villa was not aware of the garrison's military reinforcement. His plan of deploying his cavalry in a frontal assault on the town's defenses under the cover of darkness did not take into account the defenders' entrenched machine gun placements, electrified barbed wire, and searchlights that illuminated the battlefield when the assault began. This attack resulted in another demoralizing and costly failure. Villa withdrew to the west to another border town, Naco. There, he requested that his wounded soldiers be transported by American railroads back to Chihuahua, an appeal that was denied. While in Naco, Villa, incensed by what he believed to be collaboration by the U.S. with Carranza, openly harassed and extorted cash from an American copper company, a short-sighted and inflammatory measure. He then proceeded to attack the city of Hermosillo, the Sonoran state capital, but was easily defeated his army now depleted by casualties and desertion into a mere guerrilla force of several hundred men. His henchman Fierro is killed during this offensive, drowning while attempting to ford a lake after his horse threw him, his money belt stuffed with gold coins facilitating his death. Obregón marched into and occupied the former Villista strongholds of Chihuahua City and Ciudad Juarez, 
eliminating any officially controlled Villa territory in Mexico. Clearly, both Pancho Villa and his men were angered and frustrated by this turn of events, their behavior becoming more erratic and irrational. On January 19, 1916, a group of Villistas stopped a train heading to Chihuahua City from the United States. They executed 17 American employees, an act that outraged U.S. citizens living in the towns on the Mexican border. Although Villa denied involvement, officially the Carranza government apologized to the Wilson administration and vowed to bring the murderers and Villa to justice. One of the formerly most powerful political forces in Mexico was now a mere criminal. Villa's response was even more audacious. He proceeded to cross the border near the tiny and isolated town of Columbus, New Mexico. At one in the morning, a firefight broke out between the Villistas and the U.S. soldiers stationed in the town. The Mexican rebels looted the local general store and destroyed a hotel, but after some initial confusion, U.S. cavalry and even local townspeople organized a response that drove the invaders out of the town. As dawn broke, the cavalry chased Villa 15 miles into Mexico before breaking off the counterattack. The Columbus invasion killed eight soldiers and ten civilians and wounded several others. Although he was able to seize some nominal amounts of weapons and livestock, Villa never even explained, much less justified, this wanton and foolhardy provocation. Already down to about 500 fighters, Villa lost approximately 70 killed and more wounded, a costly endeavor. Of the seven captured Villistas, six were eventually hanged, one pardoned because of his youth. Public outrage alone prompted Wilson to launch a rapidly deployed military expedition under the leadership of the Commandant of Fort Bliss, Texas, and experienced Apache antagonist, John Blackjack Pershing. Commanding 6,000 men split into two separate columns, Pershing crossed the border without the permission or even cooperation of the Carranza government, which was sensitive to any American incursion. Fleeing south, Villa attacked any appropriate smaller targets along the way, but suffered a serious leg wound at Guerrero on March 28th. Pershing's force quickly located the Villistas and successfully attacked Guerrero, but Villa escaped into the mountains, where he hid for six weeks, recovering from his gunshot injury. Although Villa was no longer popular in Mexico, the American expedition was considered an invasion and an incident at Hidalgo Peral, in which several American soldiers and numerous Mexicans were killed, prompted an agreement between the two governments that the Pershing expedition would gradually withdraw. Unfortunately, in the field, the expedition ignored such guidelines, prompting another violent exchange at the town of Carrizal, which resulted in 12 American casualties, 23 prisoners, and 33 Mexican casualties. Suddenly, the U.S. began threatening a declaration of war, seizing border entries along the Rio Grande and demanding the release of American prisoners. Carranza de-escalated the tension and released the prisoners, but Pershing spent the remainder of 1916 winding down the mission. By the time Blackjack finally retreated across the border on February 5, 1917, after spending $130 million, the expedition was perceived as an abject failure. 
In the meantime, Villa had perfected a new hit-and-run style of attack that found him attacking such strategic targets as Chihuahua City, Torreon, and Ojinaga, seizing provisions, extorting cash, and then quickly vanishing. He spent the rest of 1916 and 1917 descending into essentially banditry, targeting American Mormons who were settled throughout northern Mexico, kidnapping them, and demanding ransoms in gold. Those who refused or couldn't pay were executed. For his part, the general assigned to track down Villa, Francisco Merguia, earned the nickname Pancho the Rope for summarily hanging any Villistas captured during his efforts. Nevertheless, by 1919, the Villa faction was able to rejuvenate itself into a 1,500-man unit. The participants comfortable with dividing up the scraps from their guerrilla raids. Rejoining Villa, Felipe Angelis helped with concocting strategies aimed at rebuilding Pancho's social justice stature. But the disorganized lawlessness and violence of the current Villistas quickly disillusioned him. He deserted Villa for a second time, but apprehensive about returning to the U.S. and possible internment, he remained in Mexico. Captured by the Carranza government, he was court-martialed in Mexico City, condemned and executed by firing squad on November 26, 1919. Following another failed attempt to seize Ciudad Juarez in June of the same year, Villa's brief and modest resurgence flickered out. While Villa's power waned, Carranza was able to convene a constitutional convention that officially designated him as the president of Mexico in May of 1917. Because he could not constitutionally run for re-election, he became caught up in the machinations to defeat Alvaro Obregón as Carranza opposed any military figure as president. Obregón then launched an attack on Mexico City, forcing Carranza to flee to Veracruz in May 1920. Under mysterious circumstances, during this escape, Carranza was either shot by troops loyal to Obregón or committed suicide after being wounded. In the subsequent presidential election, Obregón was elected and assumed office in December of 1920. Mexico and its population were tired of violence and national disorganization, and Villa seized the moment to negotiate an agreement that allowed him a comfortable, quote, retirement, unquote, while forsaking violence. Before Obregón's election, Villa successfully negotiated the receipt of a 25,000-acre hacienda near Peral. Here he resided with 50 of his Dorados, who served as his personal bodyguard. A state-funded pension was distributed among Villa and his men. For two years, Villa was politically inactive and wary of potential assassination. He did not allow any visitors or strangers to walk behind him or sleep within his vicinity. Whenever he left his hacienda in rural Canutillo for business in Peral, he was accompanied by large numbers of his Dorado's bodyguard. However, as time passed and the Obregón government struggled to satisfy the various factions involved in the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution, Villa became more vocal. By 1923, Villa was giving interviews to members of the national press where he was less than complimentary to the Obregón government and made vague threats to return to politics, boasting that he could raise an army of supporters in a matter of days. With a national presidential election scheduled for 1924, such statements might have alarmed the political establishment, concerned that Villa might be considering an active role 
or even his own candidacy. Amidst this atmosphere, life went on at Villa's Hacienda. On July 20, 1923, he was returning to Canutillo in a large Dodge automobile with cash he picked up in Peral for his employees. An aide had recently cautioned him about the expense incurred by a huge entourage accompanying him on trips to the city. In response, Villa limited his latest bodyguard to five additional individuals crammed into his car. With Villa at the wheel, the Dodge made its way slowly through the streets of Peral. When it reached an intersection that required a turn, a street vendor began shouting, Viva Villa! the general's former rallying cry, but on this day, a signal to seven assassins who quickly stepped into the street with high-powered rifles. They fired over 40 rounds of hollow-point bullets, nine hitting Villa and killing him instantly. Only one member of the entourage survived. To ensure that Villa's funeral would not become a political demonstration or even a violent insurrection, government officials insisted that Villa was buried the next day in a small, nondescript grave in Peral, instead of the elaborate crypt Villa planned on in Chihuahua City. Of the major political figures of the Mexican Revolution, only Alvaro Obregón remained standing. Porfirio Díaz died in exile in Paris in 1915. Villa, Carranza, Zapata, and Madero all were assassinated at some point during this power struggle. Prompted by the Germans in 1916, Victoriano Huerta returned to the United States where he conspired, in conjunction with Pascual Orozco, to launch a coup d'etat against the Mexican government. He was arrested on a charge of sedition by U.S. Marshals after stepping off of a train in New Mexico, only a short distance from the Mexican border. Confined to Fort Bliss, he died shortly thereafter, possibly poisoned by the American government. Orozco was shot to death after escaping house arrest in El Paso, ostensibly for stealing horses while attempting to make his way back to Mexico. Although members of the U.S. military participated in his killing, no one was ever punished for the incident. Obregón's presidential reign was limited to 1924, as he was constitutionally allowed one term. His hand-picked successor, Plutarco Calles, the general who defeated Villa at Agua Prieta, and a confidant of Obregón, was elected, but this did little to provide political and social stability. Obregón was an agnostic with a deep antagonism for the Catholic Church, and his proxy Calles pursued repressive policies that dealt violently with priests and church supporters. Another full-scale war broke out in 1927 that killed 100,000 people. An armistice was brokered by U.S. Ambassador Dwight Morrow, the future father-in-law of Charles Lindbergh. Calles also changed the Constitution to allow for the re-election of presidents, just not for consecutive terms. This benefited Obregón, who was re-elected in 1928. Unfortunately, he was unable to assume office, assassinated by a Catholic fanatic two weeks after the election. Even in death, Pancho Villa did not enjoy solitude. In February of 1926, Villa's grave was broken into and his corpse mutilated. His skull was removed and disappeared. An American, Emil Holmdahl, was charged with the crime but was released after a wealthy American rancher interceded. Although Holmdahl publicly maintained his innocence, he was known to be obsessed with a possibly missing Villa treasure of gold. 
and confided to several people that he stole the skull on order from a wealthy American. One unsubstantiated legend has Pancho's head in the collection of the infamous Skull and Bones Society at Yale University. Villa's complicated domestic situation also remained confusing after his death. One wife, Luz Caral, who he married legally in 1911, was recognized by Mexican courts as his heir, but two other women who claimed to be married to him were eventually granted government pensions, acknowledging their claim. Officially, Villa had five children, but most likely, considering his reputation as a ladies' man, there were many more. Over time, Francisco Pancho Villa has assumed a larger-than-life profile in Mexican popular culture. His stature increased to the extent that in 1976, his remains were transferred from Peral to the massive national mausoleum in Mexico City, El Monumento a la Revolución where he joined such luminaries as Madero and Carranza. In life, Villa was feared and reviled as a volatile killer, bandit, and criminal. Today he enjoys widespread international status as a proud nationalist revolutionary and a man of the people, long after most of his adversaries and contemporaries have been completely forgotten. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Pancho Villa. Much of the information for this podcast came from the book, The Life and Times of Pancho Villa by Friedrich Katz and Villa, Soldier of the Mexican Revolution by Robert Shana. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.